Welcome to Teach Me How to Money. I'm your host, Jeremy. On this week's episode, we'll be talking with Stash founder Brandon Krieg. But before we get to the interview, our jargon hack this week is volatility. Volatility is the tendency for the returns of stocks, bonds, and markets to fluctuate up and down, and it's a measure of how risky investments could be. And volatility is a normal part of investing. A high volatility stock, for example, has more risk. And while it may provide an opportunity for you to make more money than a low volatility stock, you could also lose more money. In contrast, a stock with lower volatility generally involves less risk, so your gains or losses on that stock might also be lower. As a general rule, stocks tend to be more volatile than bonds. Here's something else to keep in mind. Markets themselves can be volatile. That means due to any number of forces from inflation to global conflict, trade wars, and currency fluctuations, markets can move up and down a lot over a short period of time. If you have a high tolerance for risk, you might choose more volatile investments. And if you have a low tolerance for risk, you might choose less volatile investments. You have to decide how much stomach you have for volatility and invest accordingly. So high volatility investments might include gas and oil stocks, junk bonds, and alternative investments such as cryptocurrency. During periods when markets are volatile, it's possible to choose safer investments, which could include cash, bonds, and stocks that pay dividends, since dividend-paying companies tend to be older and more established. Remember, volatility is part of investing. So that was our jargon hack for the week. Now let's get to the interview. Make Sash your new financial home. Use promo code PODCAST10 when you sign up to get $10 placed in your new investment portfolio. So do you have a dream of starting your own business, maybe breaking out of cubicle culture or the 9 to 5 game, essentially changing things up so you work for yourself? Today, we'll be speaking with Stash founder and chief executive officer Brandon Krieg. He'll tell us his own story about how he decided to leave his day job working on Wall Street and found his current company, Stash. He'll also take some time later in the show to answer a number of listener questions about money and investing. Welcome, Brandon. Hey, thanks for having me. It's great to have you here. So I come to work every day at this place called Stash, along with a couple hundred other people. And I always think, before this company created jobs for us, it started out as an idea for you and your co-founder, Ed Robinson. And I think it would be really inspiring for people to understand what the founding story is or was for you and how things went from an idea to realizing this idea. And I think maybe a great place to start would be if you could tell us a little bit about yourself coming to New York and kind of what your dreams were when you came to the city and what you were doing when you first came here. Yeah, cool. I mean, look, when I came to New York, I my dreams were I have no idea what I want to do, to be honest. And I, I ended up finding a job at a very early company called Edge Trade and ended up spending a collect, I think I was there for like 17, 18 years. And, and what what was the company? Yeah, so in the beginning, we it was a trading firm and uh, we started building technology to make trading more efficient in the capital markets. And what that really means is Back in the day, in the old days, and you can really now, you can see it in movies, right, is you'd see these people on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange, you know, yelling and screaming and waving their their hands around. And that was a very inefficient system when you were an institutional investor and had an order that you wanted to route there. It was rife with uh, information leakage and people knowing what your true intentions were. You know, if you needed to buy a, a few million shares of a stock— once you started doing it, word would spread pretty quickly of what you're up to. And then prices can change and people have information about what you're up to. And, you know, when I first started in on Wall Street in my career, electronic trading was just getting going. Was, and, was, and tell people who might not know, what is electronic trading? What does that mean? Yeah, so the same example I just gave about the people waving their hands around on the floor, 
what we enabled people to do is be able to be able to route an order through a computer to the floor anonymously. And what that evolved ultimately into is that you can hide your true intentions. And let's say you had an order to buy a million shares of stock. You could break that order up into little tiny pieces. And as more and more places, more venues became available that allowed for electronic trading huh. of stock or more exchanges, we wouldn't send all of your order to one place, but we would send your order to multiple exchanges to, number one, get you the best price, but two, to break up your intentions so that no one knew what you were doing. Uh, one of my old customers, Macquarie, who's a, a really awesome global firm based out of Australia but has a very big presence in most countries across the world, uh, recruited me to come there to build a, a new type of electronic trading business. So I, I went there and, and, you know, won't spend too much time on it, but I'll tell you it was a good experience for me. One of the best things that happened to me there is I met Eddie, my co-founder. And Ed so, Robinson. Ed Robinson, <laughs> yeah. So Ed, uh, a.k.a. Eddie, <laughs> was, uh, you know, we worked together there for a bit over two years and really got to know each other and understand that we actually shared the same values, and but you also shared the same question about— well, well, Can you tell us what some of your values were and your questions? Well, the question was, you know, we're doing this, you know, business looking after rich people— and we were looking after, you know, wealthy uh, funds and, and professional investing firms for our, both of our entire careers, collectively over 30 years. However, what about everybody else? And we'd always ask ourselves that. You know, what about the people that don't understand this stuff? And we became obsessed with that. Those were the big questions we had. We didn't have any idea at all when we worked in Macquarie about, okay, what would we do if we were going to build a new type of financial services company or how would we do it? We did know, though, that there was enough passion in both of us to, one, leave the big bank and go be an entrepreneur again, and two, that we actually want to help people. That was enough for both of us to resign uh, from Macquarie, and we resigned as friends. And So those are big steps, though. I'm, I'm thinking in terms of any listener who's thinking, like, I want to start my own business. I don't know what steps to take to do that. So can you just, like, walk us through, like, you had the confidence, obviously, to go and do this and confidence in an idea to start a new financial services firm. So did you, like, come up with a business plan? Did you do, like, research? I know for a fact that you walked around on uh, some of the streets of Manhattan and just asked people, you know, what their biggest gripes were problems were with financial services companies. And so can you just tell us a little bit about your process to get yeah, there? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, one of the things that that um, started bubbling up when I worked in Macquarie was that for my entire career, people in my life, my, most of my friends, and none of my friends work in financial services, or most of them don't, would say to me, hey, what should I buy? I want to invest. What should I do? Should I sell? Should I buy? What do you think about the market? What do you think about money? What should I be doing with my money? And I was in electronic trading, so I wasn't a financial advisor to start giving them advice on where they should spend. However, it never stopped. And no matter where I'd go, I'd say, yeah, I work on Wall Street. The first question right out the gate was, what should I do? And so same thing was happening to Eddie, and the same thing was happening to me. And it turned out that even people I work with would ask the same question to me and Eddie. And so that's a big thing, right? So I'm a big subscriber to the lean, lean philosophy or lean startup philosophy, which is basically if you find a big, big problem, then it should be fairly simple to find a painkiller to that problem. So I didn't know what the painkiller would be, but what I did know that the problem was big. And the problem was is that most people in this country do not understand investing. They are not saving. 
and they have very little financial education. And, you know, now fast forward till today, we realize that almost 80% of people in America live paycheck to paycheck. So you talk about a problem, that's a really, really big problem, right? right? So what do you do about this problem? And that's the question that, you know, a lot of startups will fail because you don't put the time in to find a really good painkiller. You use your ego and just decide, all right, we're going we're gonna to do it this way and we're going to send it to customers. So when I started looking at the market, I started seeing, wow, there are a lot of different competitors starting in the market. But I'm not sure that, you know, if I was going to do it, I'd do it exactly that way. But boy, I wish I knew what the, what the customer would want. Because for me and for Eddie, it's always been about how do you solve the pain of the customer? Not about, it's not really about the tactics or the methods you use until you figure out what the pain is and how to solve it. Then you can invent the tactics and methods. Um, so we have this new thing called the smartphone, which enables all kinds of different cool apps and things to allow you to do everything from order dinner to like manage your bank accounts. How has technology changed to enable a company like Stash to exist? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, it, it really goes to the founding story. You know, we had left our jobs and we started now digging into what is the solution to a problem. One of the things that we realized really quickly is that digital advice is more powerful for the mass market than phone advising, mm-hmm. advice. And everyone, or most everyone in America now, is carrying a supercomputer around in their pocket. So we can make investing and financial services a platform accessible on the phone and give advice and financial education. That's a big part of the solution to what we we, we heard from customers. And I think, you know, if you went back in a time machine, you know, 10, 15 years ago, I don't think it would be possible to build a stash. You know, the computing power in the pocket wasn't there to support this. But also, the behaviors of people across the world now wasn't there. Tell me what it was like when you got your first 10 to 100 customers. Were you guys surprised? Was it exciting? Was it like an oh my God moment? Now we really have to deliver. Can you just talk about what it was like sort of in the process of building the company just to get your first few customers, people who are interested in what you were doing? It was scary as hell. I can yeah. tell you that. The lead up to that was we, we worked really hard. I mean, we we built a lot of different prototypes of what we thought would uh, solve a lot of the problems that people were having. The first versions of the prototype people hated. So, you know, we didn't we didn't go to code until we found a, a visual prototype that really helped people solve the problem we were trying to solve. And we did that for months. We kept showing people in the street prototypes and doing a lot of testing and user research around, you know, what did this thing that we built help you? Right? Did it? And we eventually got to yes. And I think one of the things that helped us be a little less scared when we launched is all of the work we did before we launched. Right, because we we tested prototypes heavily to understand, okay, when we do deliver this piece of software on the phone, people will like it and want it. That helped ease the pain of launch. The thing that was uh, really interesting, I think, for Eddie and I is that we underestimated how many people would want Stash. And so when we launched, we we thought we'd get you know a few people on the first day. We got thousands of people just on the first on day. On the first day. On the first day. Wow. How did they hear about you? Like how, I mean, was there a marketing campaign or just kind of like how How did they know that you Yeah, we, yeah. we did. And the lead up to the launch, we had picked a launch day. We started um, iterating a website and starting to spread uh, the message on social media. And we did a waiting list where people can get early access to Stash if they invited friends to the, to the waiting list. Yeah. That was a good helper to getting going. But at the end of the day, once you launch, you launch. And so we launched with a few thousand people and then things slowed down pretty drastically. You know, and I think that lesson to me as a startup founder was 
you know, you can get people to sign up for a product, but to really get a product to start going, you have to keep refining it and ultimately find product market fit. So we didn't have product market fit when we launched. It took a little time to find that, to create this amazing experience where someone would download the app, quickly sign up for the for Stash, open an account, and then start actively using the product. Because the best way to grow a product like Stash is so that is to create a product where friends tell friends about it. So it can grow not just with paid marketing, but also with, you know, people feeling proud of what they're doing. And it took a few months to start figuring that out. And then when we did figure it out, which we did, we started growing properly. Yeah, and of course, a lot of the technology is very intuitive to use. And it, for a user, you may not know how much work goes into creating a process like that. And I was just trying to compare that to, say, like a, a typical bank app, which is, you know, they're still kind of clunky. But, uh, you know, some of the, the newer investing apps really get this sort of user experience down very carefully. And I uh, just wondered, you know, that, that must have been hard, too, to sort of program all of that and make sure that the, the technology behind this experience was all in place. Yeah, it, it, it's, it was hard, but it wasn't that hard. And, and I think there's a, a really important reason for that. You know, if you think about an incumbent, a legacy incumbent, you know, financial company, they'll have embedded people, processes, systems, you know, a lot of technology that's just being reused or repurposed for phones and web. With Stash, one of the things that we did is we created a new blueprint, right? And so we sat down and said, when we were thinking about what to build and how to build it, is... We can't take the blueprint from an incumbent and reuse that. We have to rethink and reshape all of financial services the way that Stash is going to do it. And so it really looks the same way if you're going to build a really big building. You need an architect and an engineer to make your blueprints. And you need a plan. So when the contractors and the builders start coming, they know exactly what to build. Stash is constructed pretty much the same way from the beginning, which is we have a customer who has a pain, a problem. There happens to be more than 100 million people in America that share this pain. What is the solution to that pain? And then let's get customers to give us feedback on it. Then let's launch it, and let's have our engineers understand exactly what we need to build and why. And then we can start iterating on it. <laughs> so that you know that process, it sounds really simple. It's really hard. You know, it's it's messy doing it, but if you do it right what you end up putting out to your customer is an amazing product that people ultimately will share and feel good about. So it's a, it's a lot of work, but good planning and good uh, engagement with your customers will really help you build a, a really good product. So, like, automating is a big, you know, when I hear automating, it's like, uh, I, I don't know, it's also one of those triggers for me where I sort of tend to shut off. It's like, I don't somehow believe that automating can help you come up with the amount of money that you need to put aside into your emergency fund, but, or, you know, just to come up with this amount of $400, but I hear it again and again and again. So what does automating do that helps you sort of collect this amount of money? Like it's, you know, I think a lot of people have this idea that I just don't make enough money to save anything. Yes. So how does automating help with that, you know, short circuit that idea that you're not making enough to put money yeah. away? I mean, look, there's a practical reality right? If, if you have $400 saved in total and you come to me and say, look, I need $100,000. I need it by tomorrow. I, I can't help you with that. There's, right. nothing, there's nothing I can do. But what Stash has done for a lot of people, for millions of people now, is help you create a positive habit. So I think a lot of the problems go back to like, look at all these calculators on the internet. You know, you'll You'll say, I need, I need X dollars, and you'll put in all the numbers. Right. And the outputs, unfortunately, for most people look unachievable. 
And so what do you do? It, you feel defeated and you move on and you forget about it. So I actually want to get into the idea of expectations around investing because a lot of times I hear, oh, you know, you, either you need to be really rich to invest and so I can't do it or I'm expecting to line my retirement account with my investing, so, you know, investing returns over the next few years. I, people have outlandish expectations about what they're going to make in the market. So is there like a in-between somehow that people should, you know, this is part of where financial education comes in. But so, you know, what are your thoughts about that? Like not to have outlandish expectations about what you'll make, but also, you know, not to be so freaked out that it's too complicated and, you know, only the rich can invest. The reality is that it was the case that only the rich can invest for a really long time. That was the reality in the past is that you needed to be rich to invest because the reality is, is that Stocks are expensive. Most people in the country don't have a lot of money. And the system and the people that give financial advice don't want to spend their time on someone who has $5. They want to spend it on someone who has millions of dollars. Now, I've done this exercise before. I've asked financial advisors for help saying I only had 100 bucks, And I could tell you they wanted nothing to do with me. Go back to them and say you inherited $10 million from, from Uncle Freddie. Suddenly be all, they have time for you. Oh, <laughs> my goodness. They'll be all over you. <laughs> right. So, so there is a, a reality that— it's total bullshit that you had to be rich to invest now in 2019. Stash allows you to start with $5. And I believe that everyone should start because there's a lot of things that come along with it. Stash is not a trading firm. We're not sitting here telling you to day trade, buy and sell and buy and sell. There's plenty of, of good companies that do that. We are here as long-term investors. So you build a portfolio of companies that you know and take the advice about how to diversify the portfolio and do it for 5, 10, 15, 20 years. That is really, really powerful. And along the way, you're learning about why you're doing it and about the companies that you're investing in and getting really good advice. I'd like to get to some listener questions in just a bit, but in terms of wrapping up around uh, this idea of starting your own company and your vision for Stash, um, you have millions of customers now. How has your sense of mission uh, changed or your original idea? How, is, how are things different? Like, how do you see the company today? You know, it's a force for change. And just tell us a little bit about that. I, I'm, I have never been more excited and happy about this company than I am right now. You know, seeing how our customers are really open to, to doing this. And we've, you know, we have over three and a half million customers now, which is really, really amazing. But it's also driving me to want to get to 10 million customers, to 20 million customers, because I see the force of that change can bring positive change to our customers. Stash is a mission-driven company. And the other thing that I'm really excited about, it's not just Eddie and I anymore. You know, we have over 200 people at Stash now that work here that believe in our customer and believe in the power of the 80% of America. And it's really, really cool to see 200 other people that are speaking the same way about this company that I am. And at the end of the day, this, is, this company is built for our customers. The customer comes first. And it's, it's nice to be able to say that. And I'm so excited and proud. And we take our, our sense of mission very seriously. And we take our role in our customers' life very seriously. And we, we will continue to do that. Right. And so just to go back to some of the things we were talking about at the beginning, for listeners who have this itch to start their own company, if there's one thing that you could leave them with, what would it be? Is there like a, this question that they have to answer for themselves? Like they need to get very clear about that or just what, what would the word of advice or words of advice be for someone who's thinking of jumping off into, into starting their own business? Any, any startup that you're going to do has to be a solution to a pain. 
the problem is a lot of people invent the pain or invent the problem. Right? You know, so if you want to make widgets and you think that widgets will sell, who's going to buy them? Why would they buy them? Why don't they buy someone else's? Why are yours better? It's really important to, you know, get rid of any ego and be open to listening and asking a lot of questions. So what's the problem with ego? Because it seems like ego, you need a certain amount of it just to, like, tell, you know, listen to people telling you, oh, that idea's no good. Like, don't do it, don't do it. You mean you need a little bit of it, Well, right? a lot of people will yeah. tell you. A lot of people told me this wasn't a good idea in the beginning. Right. But um, at the end of the day, the data spoke very loudly that it was a great idea. Yeah. Um, you know, no one's ever attacked this problem before. But you need to listen is what you're saying. You have to listen. And and, and ego is, you know, I, I'm, I can give you a lot of examples of where ego got in my way along, especially in the beginning. Coming from financial services on the other side, serving businesses, not consumers, I definitely am an expert in electronic trading and trading on Wall Street. And I came into this consumer side, stash side, with a lot of preconceived notions. People will definitely know this stuff. People will know what that is. People will know what that role is. Of course they will. And then when you ask yourself, wait, are they really going to know what this is? And you say, actually, no, no, they won't. And so you have to be open to change and you have to almost free your mind to accept that not everyone, especially in this business that we're in, you know, offering banking and investing services to the masses, we have to realize that there is a reality to the way that people live their lives and what people know and understand about financial services and how we're going to solve that problem. And you just have to be open-minded and listen. Listening is really important. Great. So with that in mind, I'd like to get to some listener questions. So, Great. Um, this person wrote in to say, I want to be financially well but I don't know where to start. Can you help me? So it's, there's a lot there to unpack. But there's so what a, do you there's think? a lot there, but it's yeah. a great question. And yeah. I would tell you that there is only one way to start the process of becoming financially well, which is to start putting money away for yourself. You know, my father used to tell me one important thing is to pay yourself first. You have to find a way every month or every week, whenever you get paid, to find a little bit of money to put away for yourself. You know, money doesn't fix problems or all problems, but certainly makes some problems a little bit easier to deal with. And so if you can build a little cushion for yourself and start putting away, you know, five, ten dollars, whatever you can afford, just get it away. And once you do that, you're you made the first step. Budgeting and investing and thinking about retirement, it could feel overwhelming and daunting. It does for a lot of people. So do it in bite-sized pieces. You know, learn as you do. I think that's the most important thing. Great. So this next listener writes in and says, I'm new to investing and want to start putting money in the stock market. What should I do first? <laughs> that's also a great question. It's Yeah, it's a great question. It's going to get very similar answer to, to the last question, which is start. If you want to do it, then do it, right? There's, there's no reason why, you know, with Stash that you can't start. And the best thing about this is once you start, you're going to start learning. And you're going to feel so empowered and then we find this with millions of people, your your thirst for knowledge is going to increase because your confidence level is increasing. And you could start thinking about the different companies that you know about and learn about new companies. One of the coolest things, again, I, I talked about this before, is with Stockback, is that when you move your bank account over to Stash, you start spending and you start becoming a shareholder everywhere you spend. That teaches you so much about the way you live your life and the companies that you're investing in. And so Wall Street is approachable and accessible to you now. So start. Great. So uh, the next listener writes in and says, um, 
I feel like the stock market has made all the gains it's ever going to, and it would be dumb to start investing now because it can only go down from here. What do you recommend? Oh, my younger self. I said this to myself. That's a great question. Yeah. I said it to myself so many times over the last almost 20 years. I stopped saying it to myself during the Great Recession in 08. I asked myself, and I had a, a a lot of time to think about this, is the market going to zero? Well, if the market goes to zero and the world's going to end, I got a lot of other problems I'm going to have to deal with than than worrying about the stock market. And so if you're taking a long view, then I think if you can afford to put a little extra money away, then you should not be timing the market. Unless you have a crystal ball. Tell people what timing the market is. Does that mean like, oh, the market's up, so I'm not going to put money in here. I'm going to wait for it to go down. Like you think that you can have like a logical approach to when the best time is to put money in. Is that kind of what timing the market is? But that's always been proven wrong, basically. I mean, I don't think it's always been proven wrong. I mean, but at the same time, I haven't met anyone in my career who could do it. I can tell you that if you can do it and you have a crystal ball, uh, you can reach me and my co-founder at team at stashinvest.com. But it's it's just not it's not a it's not real. Yeah. And so I don't think that, you know, considering that no one can time the market, and if anyone tells you they can, I'd run away from them, is that you have to take a long view. And practicing dollar cost averaging and getting a diversified portfolio and learning about what you're investing in, that is time tested. You know, again, I said this before, there are no guarantees that you're gonna that the market's just going to go up. And I can't, the only thing I can guarantee you is the market will go up and down. Right. And sometimes it won't go anywhere at but all. But for this listener, it doesn't matter whether the market is at an all-time high or an all-time low. It's just basically getting started right now. You start. Yeah. Because, what I mean, at the end of the day, how do you know the market's going to go down tomorrow? How do you know what's going to happen next week or next month or next year? You, you don't. And so you could sit there your whole life and wait and wait and wait, and you'll miss opportunity after opportunity after opportunity. So again, if you can afford it, I think you start and you start putting money away slowly. Don't take your entire nest egg and put it in at one time. That would be a terrible idea, especially if you don't have a lot of money. Start investing, get in a cadence of creating that really positive habit. Because I'll tell you what, if the market does does go down, you should continuously be putting money away as the market's going down just as much as you should when the market's going up. Great. We've been talking with Brandon Krieg. He's the co-founder of Stash Invest. Thanks so much for coming on the show, Brandon. Yeah, thanks. Jeremy, I have to say, again, to everyone, you know, all of our Stash customers listening, we're really, really proud of you. You know, to see so many of you take this super positive step, and and some of you have now been with us for going on four years now. We're really proud of you, and we're so excited about all the great things coming. So thanks a lot, and uh, thanks for, for doing this with me. Thanks for listening to Teach Me How to Money. Send us your questions at teachmehowtomoney at stashinvest.com and we'll try to answer them in a future episode. If you like what you're hearing, leave us your review in the Apple Podcasts app on Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you like to listen to your favorite podcasts. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute a recommendation from Stash to the listener. Neither Stash nor any of its officers, directors, or employees makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast, 
and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Stash, and Stash is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Stash to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of Stash.